The Pharisees and the Herodians didn't have much in common. But they could agree on one thing, this Jesus fella needed to get out of the way because he was mucking up the works. He was ruining things for both parties, they, and so they colluded together. They contrived a trap, and they asked Jesus about taxes. Taxes. Ain't nobody like taxes, right? Anybody in here like taxes? Cheryl likes taxes. That's right. You're, you said no? That's funny. That's funny. I'm not sure you like tax season. Yes, bring it. Yeah, you really you think about that. Nobody likes taxes. That's why one of the one of a, there's always a political party that has a primary running uh, person during the candidate and season that says, "I'm going to take down your taxes." And one of the things that you know, what is it? The the tax and spend liberal. Nobody likes taxes. Nobody liked taxes in Jesus' day, and that's why they come to him with this question: Who is it okay for us to pay? Taxes. Should we pay taxes? In the time of Jesus, in the land of Israel, known as the Roman province of Judea, life was dominated by the empire of Rome, ruled over by Roman-approved leaders, and the people of Judea had to pay taxes to Rome. Heavily taxed, actually. There were taxes for the temple within the religious system. There were taxes uh, for, for the people. There were, uh, in, in Rome's perspective, there was a census or a head tax that was, a given, uh, was appointed upon every adult between the ages of 14 to 65. I guess under 14, you weren't an adult, and over 65, you weren't an adult either. So everything was good. I, I'm just saying, throwing it out there. It was only about uh, one day's wage, and one day's wage per year isn't really that much. But, but this idea of paying a head tax or a census tax was deeply resented, especially by the Pharisees. Deeply resented by most common people because it was a reminder that they were not free. The tax that was paid specifically to Rome with a very specific coin that had the Roman emperor's head stamped upon it was a reminder that they were dominated by a foreign power, dominated in everyday life, dominated in thinking, dominated by Rome. And so the Pharisees hated it. You also had the, this Roman coin. You see it right there uh, on the image projected. On the one side, it had the, the sort of the portrait or the profile of uh, Tiberius Caesar. On the other side, you see him sitting on his throne or on his chair ruling. There were offensive words uh, inscribed on, on the coin itself, and that's one more reason why the Pharisees hated it. The Herodians, however, were a, a small group of Jews who had faithfully supported the family of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, that political animal who was able to stay in power and in authority because he was able to stay in favor with Rome. His sons did very much the same thing. The Herodian party was those who supported the Herodian family. And because Rome was the, uh, the reason they had power, the Herodians didn't mind the tax so much. These two groups were brought together by a common enemy, Jesus. The Pharisees and the Herodians were strange bedfellows, but on this they agreed, Jesus had to go. The question they asked Jesus, couched in these flattering words, was the trap. 
Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? In their thinking, you see, no matter how Jesus answered, he would tick somebody off. If he answered, no, you should not pay your taxes, well, he's going to tick off the Herodians, and he's going to tick off the Romans, and he's going to get removed from power, just like Judas the Galilean did some years before as he led a rebellion against Rome precisely because of this tax. If he says, yes, you can pay that tax, it's good and it's right to pay to Caesar, well, then he's going to tick off the Pharisees and sort of the normal people, the blue-collar workers, the everyday people of society. In their thinking, no matter how Jesus answered, he would offend some party. Opposition would rise. His popularity would dwindle. But Jesus, we can't miss this. Jesus, as he so often does, tilts the field of play. He changes things by the way he answers the question. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 18, Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Am I the only one that finds it mildly amusing that when Jesus said, Show me a coin, he didn't have it, but they did? Am I the only one that finds that kind of... The denarius, this coin, was Caesar's because it bore his likeness. It bore his image. The word here is literally icon, which can be translated as likeness or image. And the coin was, in a very real sense, Caesar's own property, even while it was in circulation. The coin had his picture, had the inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And Jesus says, it's Caesar's, give it back to him. He avoids the trap because while he seems to be siding with the Herodians in the matter of taxes, Jesus touches on something far deeper, far more fundamental than even money and taxes. Jesus here touches upon something that is inscribed upon the very building blocks of human life, on our very DNA, the image of God. Give back to Caesar what belongs to him. The coin was Caesar's because it bears his image. And give back to God that which belongs to God. What belongs to God? That which bears his image. And what bears God's image? We do. Us, humans, the Pharisees standing before Jesus, the Herodians too, you and me. In the account of God's creative actions from Genesis that Nancy read for us this morning, we read, we hear about God creating male and female, creating man. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock And over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And while we cannot say everything there is to say about the Trinitarian act of creation, we can say that God created humanity uniquely among all of creation. Of all of God's creation, of all that God pronounced good, Only humans, male and female, were and are in 
God's image. And we can't say everything there is to say about the image of God this morning. We can say a few things. First, being made in the image of God is that which gives every human being dignity, value, and worth, regardless of uh, uh, ethnicity, regardless of race. Fundamentally speaking, every human has v- validity, has, has value, has worth, because every human carries the image of God. Made in his image, we are made as personal beings with this capacity to know and be known, to be in relationships. Being made in the image of God, we are spiritual beings with a non-material and yet no less real part of ourselves. Being made in the image of God, we are creative beings called to be fruitful and multiply, to culture and to create. Being made in the image of God means this and it means more, but at its core, being made in the image of God means we are His. Being made in the image of God, people owe themselves to God. All of that which bore Caesar's image was his. And all of that which bears God's image is his. When Jesus said, give back to God what is his, he was not saying to these Herodians and Pharisees, he's not saying to us now that we can give back only a small portion of ourselves. He's saying that God wants it all. And in his radio addresses during World War II that that turned into his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis puts it this way, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. And on that day in Jerusalem, the Pharisees and the Herodians stood face to face with Jesus. They wanted to trap him in words and get rid of him. Amazed at the verbal dance and Jesus' ability to escape their their trap, perhaps even convicted by the truth of his words, they walked away. What they should have done is ask one simple question. How? How, Jesus, do we give ourselves to God? And that is the question we must ask ourselves today. How can we give ourselves to God? We recognize ourselves well enough, I think, to know that we're not perfect. We recognize ourselves well enough, I think, to know that we have fallen short of God's standard of righteousness, God's standard of behavior. We can't even meet our own expectations for righteous behavior unless we set the bar really, really low, much less meet God's standard of righteousness. So how can we, who carry the stain of inherited sin and the guilt of our own sin, how can we come before the Holy Creator God in whom there is no shadow of darkness nor hint of evil? How can we come before the God before whom angels kneel, before whom Moses hit the dirt, before whom Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 says, woe unto me, I'm a dead man because I am a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. How can we who are no better than Moses and Isaiah and certainly no better than angels, how can we come before a holy God and give ourselves to him? How? Well, the image of God is far more Enduring than we perhaps give it credit. And, 
And we can come before God only through the renewal of that image. There on that day in Jerusalem, the Pharisees and the Herodians stood face to face with the one, the only one, who can and will fix the image, who can and will repair the fractured mirror, who can and will make us new. And they walked away. The image of God, as I've said, is far more enduring than we perhaps give it credit for. We perhaps think that we've sinned so grievously that we've broken it so far beyond repair that God cannot possibly want us anymore. That is a lie from Satan. You see, it is true that a mirror, like a mirror in a seedy bathroom in a dirty gas station just outside of Tallahassee along I-10, not that we saw one of those on our trip to Disney World, right? I don't know what the mirror in the, re- in the ladies' restroom looked like, but the stall that I used had blood splattered on the side. I can only imagine the mirror was pretty disgusting as well. You see, that's true that like a mirror in a seedy bathroom in a dirty gas station just out of ta- outside of Tallahassee along I-10, the image of God in us is fractured and cracked because of sin. But it's broken, not destroyed. And like that fractured mirror smudged with half-hearted attempts to clean off the obscene comments and phone numbers written in Sharpie, there are glimpses of reality revealed through it. In order to give to God that which is God's, the image must be repaired and renewed. Sin must be forgiven. The stains must be removed. And just a few days after this encounter with the Herodians and Pharisees, Jesus would be falsely condemned and crucified. The one who perfectly bore God's image would die so that those who through their own sins and inherited guilt bear a broken image could be restored. And then a few days after his death, Jesus would step out of the tomb The place of the dead, having conquered over death, his resurrection, the divine no to death, having the last word. And now, finally, because of Jesus, because of his crucifixion, because of his resurrection, that which was fractured in the events of Genesis 3 can now be repaired and renewed, the image restored, sin destroyed and broken itself. Trusting in Jesus does mean forgiveness and cleansing. It also means the renewal of the image of God within the believer. St. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. How do we give God that which bears his image? Trusting Jesus. Following Jesus. Jesus, obeying Jesus. In this, believers in Jesus are no longer their own as they've been bought at a price. In this, as they are now free to come to God with all that they are, to be forgiven and renewed and brought to life, they are now able, believers, to give everything that they are, holding nothing back to the one who created them, the kind and compassionate God who sent Jesus to save them, to renew and restore All that bears God's image belongs to God. And if you have been saved through Jesus Christ, you have been bought at a price, you are no longer your own. I heard one of our Emmanuel elders say the other morning, following Jesus means we just don't get to have our own way anymore. Instead, 
we go the way of the one in whose image we are made and renewed. Now, I'm sure this being the last sermon in a series about money, I'm sure you're wondering, what does this have to do with money? It's a good question. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> well, clearly we have to recognize here that money is not the heart of the matter here. Rather, the heart of the matter is found in something far more foundational. Being made in the image of God, people owe themselves to God. This does mean that there is not a single aspect of our life and ourself that is not owed to God. There's that wonderful passage, I believe it's in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Again, an elder brought this to my attention. Where God says to the people of Israel, be careful when you come into the land that you do not convince yourselves that what you've got, you got by your own hands. Because it came from God's hands. So everything that we are, even that stuff that we think we earn through our own blood, sweat, and tears and our own natural gifting and talent, all of that stuff really came from God who made us with that natural talent, who gave us the ability to work. And so we have to recognize that while money isn't the heart of the issue here from Matthew chapter 22, rather the heart of the matter is something far more foundational, being made in the image of God, people owe themselves to God. And that includes our finances. Sam Houston was a coarse and belligerent man. Late in his life, Houston became a believer in Jesus, and he was baptized. After his baptism, Houston offered to cover half of the salary of the minister uh, who baptized him out of his own finances. Houston was asked why he would do that, and Mr. Houston said, my pocketbook was baptized too. That's a good idea. <laughs> Next time we baptize anyone, they're bringing their purses and their wallets with them. And don't put them in garbage bags to keep them from getting wet. The point is, having been made in the image of God and with the renewal or repair of that image in, through, and by Jesus, we realize that we are no longer in control. We're no longer in charge, not even of ourselves, Jesus is. How we use or how we misuse our money does reveal just who is in control, just who is in charge, just who is the master of our hearts. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How we use our money reveals who or what is the treasure of our hearts. And being made in the image of God, it is God who is to be our treasure. It is God who is to be in control. It is God who is to be in charge. And so when it comes to money, as it comes to all aspects of life, believers in Jesus need to remember the image need to remember to whom we belong, need to remember, really, who we are. Bought with a price, made in God's image, renewed and restored by Jesus, who is now master of our lives, master of our beings, being made in the image of God. People owe themselves to God. In his grace, God the Creator renews and restores the image through Jesus Christ so that we can give all that we are back to him, to his glory, to his honor, and for our good. And I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Gracious and